Thank you again to our worship team for leading us so faithfully in song this morning. As you're finding your way back to your seats, I'd invite you to go ahead and turn in a Bible to Acts chapter 6. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts, a series I've entitled Changing Times, Timeless Church, but we are skipping ahead a little bit. We were in chapter 3. Last week, this morning, we'll be in chapter 6, and we are looking at verses 1 through 7. Again, uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It's in your bulletin on page 8. There's also a few Bibles in front of you, or if you brought a copy of God's Word, you can turn there. Again, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the twelve disciples, summoned the full number of the rest of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. We see three things here this morning, three things that have application even to us, the church still continuing today. The three things we see are the struggle of the early church, the structure of the early church, and the success of the early church. Again, the struggle, the structure, and the success of the early church. And again, those are three things that will have application to us this morning, who are also a part of the church that was formed here by the Spirit, uh, following the ascension of Christ, as we have seen now through the book of Acts. Again, the struggle, the structure, and the success of the early church. That first one, struggle. Notice in these verses, notice how it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long for even the early church to become divided along secondary lines. As we will continue to see in the book of Acts, and as we saw here even uh, at Lake Osborne, we were in the study from Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians, that letter at 1 Corinthians, as we have seen, the early church was never, is not a perfect church. Again, we're going to see it as Acts continues, and we know we see it in the rest of the New Testament when Paul begins to write his letters. The earliest of church, the first church, was never a perfect church. It was never a country club for saints, but it was always a hospital 
for sinners. And because the church features sinners in its midst, we see these tendencies that can that can take root, tendencies that we are called to fight against and to to strive against. And one such tendency that we see here in chapter 6 is the tendency, again, to divide along secondary lines. The tendency for division, the tendency for prejudice. Again, it could be on racial lines, cultural lines, demographic lines, but whatever those lines are, there's the tendency within the heart of man, and therefore in the church, to divide, again, um, based upon secondary things. And remember, this is happening, this account here is happening on the heels of Pentecost. And if you recall, at Pentecost, it featured the arrival of many Jews into the city of Jerusalem who had been living elsewhere in the Roman Empire. They were gathering, again, for the appointed feast day there in the city, but they had come from the further reaches of the empire. If you remember at Pentecost, it also featured the arrival of many Gentile converts to Judaism, who again would be traveling with their Jewish brothers and sisters uh, into the holy city for the appointed feast day. So that what happened then, of course, at Pentecost was when the gospel was preached, And when the Spirit began to move and the early church was being founded and people were coming in by conversion to the early church after hearing the apostles preach, that that, that mass or that group that was being gathered was, of course, a mixed bag culturally, racially, and so forth. You would have had local, so to speak, Jews in Jerusalem who were converted to the Christian faith who were local, again, Aramaic-speaking Jews there in Jerusalem who hear the apostles preach and who are converted by the power of the Spirit. But then into that group, you would also have these Jewish folks who had come in again to Jerusalem, but who had been living elsewhere in the Roman Empire or in the Mediterranean world, and those other places were less Hebrew, if you will, culturally, and they were what? They were much more Greek. They were Greek in their culture, uh, in their language. They were Hellenistic, as the term here is used in Acts 6. And then again, you'd have Gentile people coming in, again, converted to the faith, bringing again these different cultural assumptions and habits and language and patterns and ways of life with them. Again, so that here in the early church, it would be a very, very mixed group. And so you'd have essentially in the early church those who were from around here and those who were not from around here. Have any of us ever experienced that before? Right? You go into certain places and it's clear you're not from around here, right? You go into the south and you order unsweet tea, you're not from around here, right? It's all sweet tea. You go up north, different, right? You order sweet tea, and that's hard to find, right? You get it, right? There's places in life, locally, nationally, wherever, right, that you can have that tension. I've I've shared the story before. You've heard me say it, but I once drove uh, to a wedding from North Carolina to, I'm sorry, yeah, from North Carolina to Ohio, okay? It was quite a trek. I left like at the crack of dawn one morning to get there later that day, and I went from uh, western North Carolina to Ohio, But in doing so, I had to go through West Virginia. Right, Roland? Right? (laughs) 
I had to go through West Virginia, okay? And the story I told, if you remember, was I was wearing a tuxedo. I had to be at a wedding that night, all right? And I was driving my pickup truck at the time. I had a pickup truck back then. And I'm driving through West Virginia, and I pull over at a truck stop, and I get out of my truck to fill up the, the gas tank in a full tuxedo, okay? It was clear I was not from around there, all right? It, it was just, it was obvious, all right? And I stood out like a sore thumb. I saw the looks. I was quick to pump the gas and quick to get back into my truck and keep driving, right? It was clear that I was not from around there. Well, again, that's what's happening here in a sense. There are these groups in the church, even in the early church, where you can see who's from around here and who's not from around here, and because of that division grew. And as we see, what was happening is as the church is growing at the time, the apostles themselves, the twelve, you know, apostles, those who had been appointed, including Matthias, the one who had replaced Judas, the apostles are taking upon themselves responsibility after responsibility after responsibility. And one of those responsibilities was the benevolence ministry in the early congregation. And it was a benevolence ministry to the poor in their midst. And as you might know, in this day and age, you know, first century um, ancient Near East, Mediterranean, right, New Testament times, to be a widow was one of the most marginalized positions. As you know, it's a very patriarchal society, and so to be widowed would have been to be in a position potentially of great um, forgetfulness, of great marginalization, of great potentially even poverty. And so how those, those folks were being cared for in the congregation, just like it's important today, was very, very important back then too. And so the apostles are, are trying to keep tabs on all of this, but because it's so busy and there's so much preaching and ministry happening, this is one of the things under their care that potentially had lost kind of their attention. It had lost sight. So that what's happening is that there are those being uh, neglected, and those being cared for. And, and the line was being drawn racially, basically. The Hebrews, the Hebrew widows were being given great attention, and the, the Greek widows, those not from around here, okay, were being neglected. And this comes then to the apostles' attention. And so it's a reminder again for us, as we again connect ourselves to the early church, it's a reminder that there is this tendency, this temptation, and this struggle always always, that sin, and, and particularly in this manifestation, uh, to be divided is a, is, a, is a realization or a tendency we have to fight against, we have to strive against. Again, the tendency is to break down, even in the church, even in the people of God, it's to break down according to secondary identity markers, the color of your skin, how much money you make the neighborhood you live in, the language you speak, the clothes you wear, whatever it is, right? these secondary things, and I call them secondary things because they are certainly secondary things. And I call them that because the solution to that problem back then and today, the solution to that problem is to always fixate ourselves on our primary marker, which is what? The gospel. What primarily unites us is our identity as children of God, as those who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Those are the primary markers. 
We're all created in the image of God. All of us. All created as the, the crown of creation, precious in his sight. We all have that in common. That's our primary identity. We are created by God. But what's also primary? We're sinners, right? Again, regardless of our skin color, regardless of what language we speak, regardless of what neighborhood we live in, regardless of how many zeros are at the end of our bank account, we are all sinners before God. Sinful all the way down. But yet we've also been redeemed the same way, have we not? Again, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and we're all saved by the same work, the same atoning blood of Jesus. In fact, as you know, the Apostle Paul will later in his own letters say what? That in Christ Jesus there is neither now male nor female, Jew nor Greek, but what? All are one in Christ. And so again, the way that we war and fight and strive against division along secondary lines, that struggle is to remind ourselves of what primarily unites us, which is the gospel of Christ Jesus. And so again, you see the struggle here in the early church, but out of that struggle, you also see our second point. You also see a structure develop. Out of the struggle, you see a structure develop. If you notice in chapter 6, in typical God fashion, he works good out of our bad. He takes the struggle and the mistakes and the messiness of man and the church to actually advance his kingdom and to actually advance his mission. You might know that uh, later in church history, so for instance, like in the first few centuries after uh, the New Testament, you know, 100s, 200s, and specifically in the 300s, um, AD, in early church history, that's when a lot of the doctrines that we can speak of today with certain terms begin to develop. So what's happening in the early church is that, uh, you know, uh, people will begin to teach, again, first, second, third century, people will begin uh, to teach, to preach, to speak, to write, and what will happen is that it'll be apparent that some people aren't going as far as Scripture says on certain things and some people are going too far. And so specifically in the early church, again, those first few centuries after the New Testament, the two major issues that will be debated are the Trinity and the natures of Christ. The Trinity and the natures of Christ. So example, you know, how is it that Jesus is fully God, but also fully man? There's gonna be great debates that rage and there'll be men who spring up in those first few centuries who teach things slightly off kilter, who have to be corrected. Or the Trinity is the same way. How is it that God is three in one, uh, distinct, but equal? That'll be another term that, you know, and thing that comes up. And so what happens, though, is that in the earliest uh, uh, you know, centuries, those truths, if you will, aren't invented. The Trinity is clearly taught in Scripture, is it not? But that term develops to protect, if you will, or to define, to articulate the truth already found in Scripture. And the same thing will happen uh, with the dual natures of Christ. Certain terms will develop, again, to now articulate what Scripture already teaches. But what's the point? The point is that in those first few centuries, what happens is that it takes error, or it takes the teaching of false doctrine, it takes heresy, that's the term, to then create the need, if you will, for orthodoxy to be proclaimed. 
So it takes the mistake, you know, the, the wrong teaching, to then create the structure of orthodoxy. Does that, does that make sense? The right terms now to, to protect and to define what it is exactly Scripture teaches. Well, the same thing is happening here in Acts 6, if you notice. God takes the struggle of the church, he takes the mistake of the church, but he uses it to what? To now create something good, namely proper church government and structure. Because again, what we saw here is that the work and the need of the church was too great even for the apostles, and so what happens is it begins to break down. They couldn't give oversight over the benevolence ministry. So what does God do? What does he do? He creates here the division of labor. He creates a division of labor. And what does he tell us here? He tells us that some men will be appointed and called to ministry of prayer and word. Those are your elders. And some men will be called and appointed to the ministry of the physical needs of the congregation. Those are your deacons. And so basically what's happening here, again, is that the the seeds are being planted for those two offices to to eventually develop and formalize. And we'll see that, and you can read more about that, of course, in Paul's letters. So places like the letters to Timothy, letters to Titus, is when Paul then begins to really define and articulate those offices more, um, more properly in the church. But here, you begin to see the seeds of those things being planted by God, two different offices, both necessary, both God-honoring, both precious in the Lord's sight, both even a form of shepherding the Lord's people, but it's two distinct skill sets and two distinct groups. Not that they can't overlap at times, but again, two distinct tasks, two distinct groups, two distinct skill sets, though, but all used for the good of God's church and ultimately the care of his people. So again, we see that here, that the role of elder being formed in a, in a sense, the role of deacon being formed. And again, he does this for the, the multiplied and diversified good of his church. That's so like God, right? Taking our messiness, the mistakes, but then using it as the springboard then to put into place this God-honoring structure that, again, even continues down to our day. As we've, as we've seen in this series, you know, we are connected to the earliest of churches because of the gospel. And there are certain things that we're able to contextualize, let's call it, right? There are certain things in the church that can be contextualized from one culture or generation to the next. But there are certain things we're not allowed to change. <laughs> there are certain things that are ordained by God, and the government is one of them. And we see that here, that God puts in place this proper church government, again, all for his ultimate glory and all ultimately for the good of his people. But this division of labor also does something else. It helps you in the congregation as a member, it helps you even process, where am I most equipped? Where am I best suited to serve? Because as you know, the office of elder and the office of deacon are reserved for a select few that the congregation uh, recommends, that we, you know, we, we, we vote on, and they're appointed, right? It's, the, it's offices reserved for men. But this division of labor does what? 
it helps us, even as members, kind of ask ourselves, but where am I most equipped to serve? Where am I most equipped to serve, even as a congregant? For instance, if you're someone who more naturally gravitates towards you know, ministries of benevolence, ministries of mercy, if you're someone who more uh, naturally gravitates towards the, the physical needs of the congregation and those kinds of things, well, then you're someone who can uh, come alongside the diaconate, right? Come alongside that group and to help, help serve the church in that way. Maybe, that, maybe that's where your, your gifts or your talents lie. Visitation, making meals, uh, you know, uh, maintaining the physical structures of the church and so forth. Again, maybe you're someone who's called to that kind of ministry, just like Stephen here was and those who also were named along with him. Or perhaps you're someone who more naturally gravitates towards ministries of prayer and word. Well, again, then, how can you come, come alongside your elders? How can you come alongside the session? How can you engage in an in intercessory prayer ministry? How can you maybe open up your home and, and make it available for Bible study and for, for someone like myself to come in and teach a Bible study or for one of our elders to come in and teach a Bible study? Again, how can you participate in that way, you see the division of labor here that's established in Acts 6 helps all of us, not just officers of the church, but it helps all of us kind of figure out where am I most gifted? Where do I naturally gravitate towards? And how can I, and I use that to ultimately uh, advance the kingdom of God and advance his church locally here at Lake Osborne? So we see here a struggle in the church. We see here a structure in the church. But then lastly, we also see the church succeed in her ministry. Notice how, again, the struggle is overcome by the Holy Spirit's prompting. And the structure is put in place by the Holy Spirit's prompting. All for what purpose? All for what purpose? The answer is found in those last few verses. Verse 7. And the word of God continued increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. You see, all of this is done. The struggle is overcome, the structures are put into place, that the word of God might increase, that the church of God might be best positioned to do the work of proclamation. That's why. That's why. Why why was it important for the internal strife between the Hellenists and the Hebrews to be brushed aside, that the word of God might not be hindered? Why was it important for effective you know, church government to be put in place? Is it because the church needs a bureaucracy? No, of course not. Is it so that some people can feel important in their offices? No, of course not. Why was that structure put in place? That the word of God might increase that the word of God might not be compromised or hindered, and that's the same truth and the same reality for us today. If you remember, the Apostle Paul will later tell us in his letters that the gospel itself is a stumbling block, is it not? The gospel itself is a stumbling block to many. And so the reason these things are, are done in the book of Acts, the reason we can see these things happen is because the gospel itself, that message alone is a stumbling block. That message that we have been created by God, but have fallen short in every single way, that we're sinners, 
But we've been redeemed, we can be redeemed through the blood of his son Jesus by faith and faith alone, right? That message itself is a stumbling block to many. So we don't want to put anything else that will cause others to stumble, if you will, uh, alongside it. We want to put all those things aside so the Spirit of God can do its work. And so that's what's happening here in Acts 6. We get out of the way our petty human differences. We get out of the way our petty human preferences. We put aside our our personal rivalries and our jealousies regarding who does what, who has which position in the church, who gets the credit, who is thought to be more important or spiritual, and we simply become comfortable with who God has made us to be, where he's gifted us, where he's equipped us. And we begin serving the family of God the best, the best way that we know how. Again, why? That the gospel might be proclaimed. That the word of God might go forth and not be hindered. And I love that, that, that visual here. It's as if, you know, um, we're being taught here in Acts 6 that the, uh, the advancement of the kingdom there early on and the advancement of the gospel wasn't dependent on the ability, if you will, of the early uh, followers, the early disciples, but rather the success of the early church really was dependent upon those early followers just getting out of the way, right? Just getting out of the way and allowing the Spirit to actually do the work that Christ promised that He would do in us uh, and through us. And again, that's, that's a reminder for us today. So, so the question, as we close, the question is what struggles are we called to overcome here, even in our midst, in our congregation? Where do you fit in the structure of the church's ministry and outreach? And how can all of us witness the power of the Word of God going forth, being proclaimed from this pulpit, from our ministries? How can we see it go forth that we too might experience the ingathering of disciples, that we might see the Word of God greatly expand here in Lake Worth, in Palm Beach County, and beyond? May we all consider that. May we all ponder it in our hearts. And may the Lord continue to bless his church here at Lake Osborne and everywhere. The Lord Jesus is loved, the love incorruptible. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, we thank you again that as we consider a book like Acts, which is so far removed from us in terms of time and, and culture, we thank you that it reminds us each and every week that though names and places have changed, many things remain the same. The times change, Lord, but your church is timeless and remains. And so again, Lord, may we remember that we are connected to that great movement of your spirit begun at Pentecost, but continuing down through today. And Lord, it's the same gospel, the same good news, the same Savior, the same name proclaimed under heaven by which men are saved, that of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, would you help us to uh, carry that message forward in our own day and lives, to be the ambassadors you've called us to be, into a world that so desperately needs it. And Lord, would you also remind us, we pray, of the responsibility we have here to your church, to the family of God. May we love one another 
not looking at secondary identity markers, but the primary one that unites us all, those of being your children. And Lord, would you use us again to serve your church, to promote her peace and purity and health, that again, your gospel might be proclaimed, that lives would be changed, that your kingdom would advance. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.